Hey there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. On this very special episode of Wandering DMs, we have as a guest Mr. Peter Adkison. And we are so fortunate to have him. He is the founder of Wizards of the Coast. Of course, they made a little game that you may know as Magic the Gathering. And he was also at the head of acquiring TSR Saving Dungeons and Dragons. And then later acquired the Gen Con Gaming Convention, which is coming up in one month from this show. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Now, one thing that we ought to point out to our viewers is that uh, Paul, in uh, classic, in traditional wandering DM style, is actually wandering to a remote event uh, this weekend for a uh, Cthulhu camping convention somewhere in the wilds of New England. So his, uh, his uh, video feed looks a little different today. Paul, I'm so glad you managed to, uh, to escape and join us for an hour on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I, I felt very appropriate to be taking a little time out of a game convention here to talk to Peter. Uh, uh, we, I'd love to compare notes about, uh, about uh, convention organization these days. So uh, let's, let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So I think, um, Peter, this is actually, if, if I'm counting right, I think this is maybe the 20th Gen Con that, that you've led in some way. I might be wrong. I might be off by a year or two on that. Um, and of course, you've actually acquired Gen Con twice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess it kind of depends on whether you count the Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, the, the convention I love so much, I acquired it twice. So when I was CEO of Wizards of the Coast, we acquired TSR. Yes, okay, Dungeons & Dragons was the big prize, but Gen Con was always the icing on the cake in that deal. Like, you know, oh, Gen Con, too. That was very exciting. So that was in 1997. And so I was, you know, involved in running Gen Con from 97 till um, I left the company in 2001 after selling to Hasbro. And then, um, and then of course, when I sold to Hasbro, I sold everything, uh, all, all of that. And about a year after leaving... Uh, Hasbro decided, as I kind of predicted, that there was a few businesses within the Wizards of the Coast uh, uh, business uh, that they didn't want to be involved with uh, were off strategy for Hasbro's strategy. And so I had told him, hey, you know, if there's anything you ever want to sell off, let me know, because depending on what it is, I might be interested. And they respect that enough to give me a call. And um, uh, so when I learned Gen Con was for sale, I acquired it in 2002 and owned it ever since and was really, really happy with, with that. That's great. I think, you know, one of, the, one of the stories, I think, you know, of your career, and I think that people that go into gaming need this, is it starts from a place that's really a love of the game. And then if you can find a way to make a business or a living out of it, that's even better. And obviously you've succeeded better than anybody than anybody else at that particular item um 
you know, maybe, maybe Paul might talk more about this. I he follows the convention scene a lot more closely than I do, but I think I know that um, the attendance to Gen Con was booming to its highest point ever, right before the COVID pandemic. Um, and then obviously you guys have had to regroup uh, from that a lot. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit. And I think that the, the, the main thing that I think a lot of our viewers uh, have on their minds is uh, this is the first year that Gen Con's ever been in September, uh, ever. Why, why has that happened? And what kind of uh, COVID safety um, conversations or procedures have you guys put in place for this year? Right. So, well, actually, if you go back far enough, uh, Gen Con, there was a period of years where Gen Con was positioned in late August. And, um, and I believe that it went into September a couple of those times. So, so yeah, but that's going back a long, long ways to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, we reached uh, a peak attendance, uh, unique attendees uh, at uh, 68,000. Uh, that would have been two years ago, you know. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and there was no Gen Con in 2020. And this year, we're having a Gen Con, and we're kind of positioning it as, we've been calling it a, a half Gen Con, right? <laughs> so we're, uh, we think that this Gen Con will be at about half the size of what it was uh, at its peak two years ago. And but still, uh, very right. You're talking about like nearly thirty thousand people, and uh, I've been going to Gen Con since the early '90s myself, and I think that's probably about how big it was in like '92, '93. Yeah, actually, uh, it was. You have to go. Not. It was even diff, significantly smaller than thirty thousand in 1993. More like uh, high teens, actually, um, and uh, it didn't hit thirty thousand. Uh, until well into the 2000 aughts, um, maybe 2010 even, uh, and then it it grew. Uh, it, you know, it just kind of inched up for a long time, nice steady growth. Uh, and then at about 10 years ago or so, uh, it just hit like a hockey stick, which usually in a 50 year old business you don't see uh, unless they do something completely random. And it has grown uh, really fast for, uh, for the last few years. So. Can you can you think yes uh, just sort of the explosion of geek culture uh, the fact that uh, there's just a lot more geeks and geeks have become mainstream so our culture now uh, playing these crazy games and dressing up in costumes and going out and doing all the things that us geeks like to do has has gone from being off in the fringe to being a lot closer to mainstream and I think there's a lot of contributing factors to that. Part of it's generational as kids, you know, these types of things tend to grow as you know, children adopt these ideas and then become parents and then they teach their children. And this has a compounding effect. Uh, you can point to lots of things like the, the Pokemon, I think, has I think we I think as an industry, we owe a lot to Pokemon. Of course, Pokemon owes back to, to uh, Magic the Gathering in terms of having is a tabletop game with a fair amount of complexity and strategy that was tied to a cartoon series that was in mass mass production, right? Uh, and then, you know, you have celebrities that have come forward and say, hey, I played D&D as a kid and still like it, you know, started with like people like Ben Diesel and Stephen Colbert and a bunch of other people and then Twitch and everything. So there's just been all these factors that have in, in, in online gaming. I think that, you know, I... When I was doing Wizards in the 90s, we were always afraid that online ga internet gaming, PC gaming, was going to replace the tabletop experience. 
that was the fear. And turns out, I think that it grew the market for complex games. And some of that market has come back into tabletop gaming. So I think it's been uh, synergistic for us. Interesting point. Um, so, so just to just to get back to you know you're, we're talking about Gen Con this year still running twenty to thirty thousand people. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, what, what policies are you implementing? How are you handling you know thirty thousand people during COVID? Well, for, first I got to say right off the bat, you know these things are subject to change. According, you know this is a continually evolving situation. So any statements we make about what uh, policies will be in place are subject to change based on you know city of Indianapolis, Marion County, state uh, sort of thing. But what it, the current trajectory is mandatory masks at all times, and um, at least all all indoors. I don't know if you're out, if you're on the way from A to B, maybe not, but I, I honestly don't know. The, um, at one point, we were cons- we had in place a policy where you could get a wristband if you proved that you were if you could show proof of vaccination, okay. you could get a wristband that would allow you to participate without uh, a mask. But because of the the latest surge with Delta variant, we had to kind of walk that back. So that's where we're at now. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've I've talked to some other folks. Uh, yeah, I'm on the board of a small uh, game convention, Rising Phoenix Game Con, that's supposed to start uh, up here around uh, April 22, and and that's a topic frequently is like, do we require vaccination or not? How do we even enforce that? What does that mean? I mean, even just showing the card, I mean, it's a piece of paper. Like how it seems incredibly easy to fake, right? And and what do you do if you see one? If we have someone working a door who sees one and thinks it's fake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly, yeah. I think, I think everybody, I, you know, I, I have a bunch of friends who run conventions like Luke Gygax and Alex Kammer and people, and we're all going through the same questioning. You know, we're all looking at this, you know, the same sort of way as the, you know, and what's the future? We don't know. Right. So it's, it's about trying to figure out what's the best practice. What's, how do we sort of, you know, thread this needle and hopefully we do it right. Are you Can doing I anything? Sorry, I was I'm curious ahead. if you're doing anything. Talked about having missed a Gen Con, but there was sort of a, a virtual convention, right, of sorts uh, last year. Uh, we we ran some panels uh, you know, from Wandering DM as part of that, and I'm, I'm just curious, like, are you bringing anything from that forward, or and what was your experience like in general of, of doing virtual events? Yeah, so you know that was the COVID gift. You know, there's the the lemons to lemonade. Uh, I think we all have personal stories and business stories of good things that came. Obviously, the pandemic is horrible, and it's horrible. It's all over, and of course. But it's human nature to find to learn from these things and to find things that uh, you know it changes your perspective on things. And online conventioning uh, was something. So yes, in 2020. We couldn't have an in-person Gen Con. We had a virtual Gen Con, like a lot of conventions uh, did last year, and it took us a while to come around to it because you know it's like, uh, you know, you're all set to do the real thing. It takes, and then you, you go through a, a grieving process. You know, I'm like, oh, we can't do the real. You know, we can't do this in-person event. It take, took us a while to kind of get excited about doing a virtual uh, event, and then once we did, oh, you know. Um, the team really wanted to do it well. Uh, you know, we, we had good resources. You know, we didn't let anybody go over this. None of, um, and so we had the resources to do a really good job. And what we learned is that there's 
a market of people that we were able to get to that our in-person convention can't. And that's either uh, like international, especially markets. You know, we had a whole, a whole big group of people in Brazil, a group in Australia, and people in Europe who were like, hey, now I get to go to Gen Con. Woohoo. You know, I'm like, wow, that's cool. And uh, so what that did is it brought to us, and also, by the way, people who don't like crowds. You know, they're people who just have, for whatever reason, whether it's a physical um, or mental obstacle for them, uh, just wouldn't want to come to an in-person show, especially a big show. Like Gen Con is not only in-person, but it's massive, right? So we found that there were, um, it allowed us to think a lot bigger in terms of what our potential customer base was. And so this year we're doing what I think will be an ongoing thing for us is, is doing in-person show and a Gen Con online at the same time. And uh, so now we like, okay, now we could reasonably see getting to hundred thousand attendees or multi hundred thousand attendees in, in, in the far future. Whereas before, you could, you know, it was, we were getting up to the point where like 70,000 attendees in person, we were nearing some sort of cap of how many people you can, you know, safely have in downtown, you know, COVID aside, just like normally safe, you know, just old school things like fire, you know, safety, <laughs> stuff like that, right? You know, uh, limits as to how many people you could have. So, so it, it really brought us a fresh perspective on what the opportunity is for Gen Con longer term. I will remind yeah, our viewers I like, that I, I think, think um, I, I sorry, Paul, I think that uh, uh, registration for Gen Con online just started an hour ago, as a matter of fact, it just started an hour before our show today. So hopefully our viewers either uh, got in their submissions right before the show, or uh, if they do have like last minute questions, feel free to put it in the chat and maybe we'll get it to Peter if we have time here. But uh, don't forget, that's actually happening starting today, as a matter of fact. And, and if I, if, can I plug a couple of my events? Please do. Oh, please do. Yeah. Uh, so I'm doing this concept called Actoroki, uh, which is uh, uh, something we came up with during the pandemic. We're going to do it in person for the first time at a convention. And it's where, in one event, we uh, have an RPG game that we stream live on Twitch or in, this, in Gen Con, it'll be in person as well. And then we write a screenplay adaptation of the story created in this RPG session. And a few days later, we have an actor's recording session where we record actors performing the roles in the screenplay. So Satine wow. Phoenix and I have teamed up to do this at Gen Con. So she's going to run an RPG uh, almost like the first time slot of the show, I think 10 a.m. on Thursday, local time. Uh, and it's going to be a two-hour game, so it'll be on Gen Con TV, so highly recommend you check it out. And then uh, during the, the over the next couple, three days, my creative uh, partner, uh, Steve Connard, is going to write the screenplay adaptation, and then on Sunday at 2 p.m. of Gen Con, I'll be uh, directing a cast of actors to perform that, that um, RPG story. That, that sounds great. And I think we have you know, links would, to a number of those things like Gen Con TV in the YouTube description at the moment. So people can uh, look for that either now or later after the show. It would be great. Paul? Yeah. You know, it's just going to call out that I feel like as we, um, as we progress uh, past COVID and, and some of these conventions uh, start to come back into person again, um, but we look back towards our, our moment of, vir of pure virtual cons and what can we bring forward. I think it's going to be really interesting to see more events that kind of cross the streams, right? I'm imagining things like 
panels where there's both a live audience, but also it's streaming and all, you know, things like that. Or, or this, this event that you're talking about here that sounds sort of like there's some aspect of, of live interaction and there's some in aspect of, of sort of a, a, you know, a virtual or online component. It sounds really cool. Yeah. You know, and now the other yeah. thing that I wanted to ask about is I think there's a brand new thing this year that you guys are calling a Gen Con pop-up events. That's and that's so you, apparently now you guys have to do something totally brand new and unique every single year. So what's that about here? <laughs> well, actually, we started that a couple of years ago. So uh, oh, okay, it, it, All right. it, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, my bad. Uh, the idea of pop-up Gen Con is a collaboration uh, with us with uh, distributors and retailers of of tabletop games, you know, uh, your local friendly uh, hobby game retailer sort of guy, guys and gals. And so the idea is that a retailer can, uh, per can participate in pop-up Gen Con and have kind of this mini thing happening in their store and uh, most importantly, get access to some of the game products that are being released at Gen Con. And so this requires, uh, this requires a pretty massive coordination effort logistically uh, with us, with uh, distributors, with publishers, and with retailers who sign up for this uh, to make this happen. Because uh, it's always, and I, I really, you know, David Hoppy, our president, uh, I think it's his brainchild. He would probably credit the team. I, I'm sure a lot of people were involved in coming up with this. But uh, I, I find it really, really a, a cool idea because for so long, always felt that we were sort of at war with the channel or competitors with the channel, you know, because we bring in... Um, uh, exhibitors who are selling product and essentially write directly to gamers, so we're cutting out the traditional uh, chain. And so there's kind of this inherent conflict, and I think this is a great way of, of kind of bridging that to some extent and say, hey, we can get retail... Here's a way that we can actually help retailers. I mean, maybe the local retailers might question whether we're helping, uh, but I think we help them in other ways in the sense of building up the market. So... Um, I, I I think it's a really uh, fantastic program that uh, that we put together. Fantastic, fantastic. So I, it feels to me like, depending on someone's comfort level or mobility, there's a lot of options here this year. Is they could either be an indie in person, they could go to a local game store at a pop up event, or they could do it purely online. And I think that's for for me, it seems like a really nice trifecta of options for people to be involved. And I'm kind of glad that you guys have found ways to make all, all three of those channels work for you. That sounds awesome. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, thank you. I, I think we see ourselves, Gen Con, as really you know, bringing people together to play games. And the more that we can help make that happen elsewhere, you know, being a convention, you know, one of the advantages of being a convention is that we're somewhat agnostic in terms of game companies and particular types of games. Uh, you know, we don't publish games, so we don't have some sort of vested interest in one game or another. And so, you know, we just want to feature all the games that people want to play. And in our registration system, which we've, uh, which is really kind of a little bit of the secret sauce for Gen Con in terms of, of something that we've invested in the technology over years and years, we can, we can use that to help gamers come together and maybe outside of, of Gen Con, maybe in the, you know, like the pop of Gen Con events and this sort of thing. Now I know that I know that Paul, you know, Paul has worked on technology for 
uh, a much small, obviously much smaller scale for house cons and the, and the Rising Phoenix convention he's working on. Um, and so at least in my personal circle, Paul is certainly the, the technical registration expert. So I don't know if Paul, you have any outstanding questions or comments about the, uh, the, the Gen Con registration that, that Peter was just telling us about. I, I guess I'm curious. Um, the major issue I generally see these days uh, in, in convention registration, right, is we sort of, as we moved into a technological answer away from like paper forms and, and, and whatnot, um, you know, things became so much more instantaneous that we've gotten to this point where there's this rush, this crunch moment of, okay, the servers are on, everyone go, go, go. And, um, and, and then things, you know, rapidly sell out within an hour and people are swearing at their browsers and hitting refresh over and over again. And I'm curious if that's, if that's a thing you've thought about at all, uh, or if you have any, uh, interesting ideas that, um, that you've thought of for, you know, addressing that, that sort of, um, you know, that hurry up and, and wait and, and, and that, that moment, that, that crunch moment of, uh, of hitting the registration site at a specific time and day. Um, I'm sure really smart people in my company are working on that. I'm going to shimmy out of this yeah. question and yeah, say, yeah, I, you I, know, I, I, I acknowledge the issue. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, part of it's a supply demand. There's just always been a high demand for some of the events and the having quality events. I mean, there's, yes, technology can help here and we could, we can try and fix uh, waiting lines somehow, you know, there's different things we can try and do. But I, I think the fundamental issue is that, is that there's going to be, you know, if, if Ed Greenwood says, I'm going to show up and run a D and D game in Forgotten Realms and, and I can sell five tickets. How do you stop the yeah. fact that there's a thousand people that would want one of those five right. tickets, right? <laughs> but I also I have a theory though that that sort of technology kind of invented the problem, or at least the emotional response we have to the problem, right? Because I remember back in the day uh, attending Gen Con in the early '90s, where I would get a book, a magazine, and and I would fill out forms and I would write down, I want to play in this game, and uh, if not, if the you know, here's my second choice and my third choice and whatever, and I send it out, and then. I would just wait and then I'd get back in the mail a bunch of tickets. And I'm sure that there was some poor person on the other side of that who had, you know, piles of forms had to manually sift through that. And I'm sure it was a nightmare <laughs> for that person. <laughs> but on the, but at least for me as a registrant, it was relatively calm and relaxed. And now I feel like technology has created this situation where because everything's so instantaneous that it's much more frustrating. Like, yeah, yes, you're right. Uh, that's, that's a plot. And that's, yeah, right, that's, that, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, you know, maybe there's something yeah. we should do. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we, I, I do got. I got. I, I also remember those forms that were in Dragon Magazine. <laughs> I, I remember them from uh, when in the late '80s uh, when I was a, a really wanted to go to Gen Con someday, but didn't have money because I live in Seattle, you know, and I was poor. I used to fill out those forms too. I just wouldn't mail them in. I would, fill it, but I would go through the program <laughs> in Dragon Magazine, yeah. fill it out. It was like a little fantasy of like, oh, if I could go to Jingon, here's what I, what I would do, and um, um, yeah, and then there, the the tickets were available. There was a big pegboard behind registration at Jingon back in Milwaukee days. This huge pegboard with all these little yeah. pieces, you know, and pay, all the pegs were different events, and the events would just be on a nail over that, and uh, it worked pretty good, except one year the pegboard fell over, and um, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I've got, uh, I will say, so I feel like that was a fairly hard, hardball question from Paul. So Paul's come with the hardball questions today. Um, I will say that one of our current viewers, uh, Marion McBride, uh, is uh, complimenting Hi, uh, one thing that Gen Con does. Says one, well, one of the things Gen Con does is constantly contact companies that run events with unserved demand to encourage them to run more events. So that is a, that is a good thing that you guys are doing, definitely. Well, that's great. And thank you, Marion, for coming to my uh, rescue there. Uh, yeah, so Marion knows a lot more, uh, has a lot more information about this particular question than I do, getting down into the guts of how we uh, register. So, um, yeah, I would listen to her. Awesome. And I got a, uh, this, is, this is interesting. So we, we actually have, um, uh, we have a Super Chat running for the first time this week, actually. And we didn't even tell anybody about it. Uh, but Joe, the lawyer, thank you so much, Joe, really, really uh, wanted to, uh, and I was going to, I was going to talk to Peter later about this in the show, actually really, really wanted to thank you personally for the open gaming license. And with that, without that, the OSR probably wouldn't exist. And I, I totally agree with Joe, the lawyer about that, actually. So maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Great, great point. I'm so, thank you for that for Joe that. So before we get off the Gen Con issues, I did have one hard question of my own, Peter, and that's this. Um, the writer, uh, R.A. Salvatore, um, is a good friend of the show, and we're hoping to have him back again in a couple weeks or something like that, hopefully. Um, I, 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 think you know, I think you know Mr. Salvatore. And I noticed yeah, that no, he, was scheduled, I, yes. he was scheduled to be the guest of honor at Gen Con 2020, and then that didn't actually happen, and so my question is, what are you doing to make that up to Mr. Salvatore? Uh, I'm going to cite some of that one, too. I have no idea. I'll just be honest. Marion? Maybe Marion knows. <laughs> I have no idea. I think the whole uh, guest of honor, uh, is, uh, you know, everything kind of fell apart, of course, in 2020. And I think for this year, um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I just don't know. Sorry. Okay. All right. Well, we'll hopefully we'll have uh, Mr. Salvatore on in a couple of weeks. We'll ask his... Uh, his impression and feelings about that, and we'll get it from his end, I hope, and hopefully that'll 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 inform us on the, on both sides there. Great. Yeah, let me know what he says. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, we were really. It was very disappointing when we couldn't have uh, Gen Con last year, and and Bob there. Uh, Bob and I go way back. Uh, you know, I helped him uh, get back into working on TSR novels. Uh, I. I think I played a pretty significant role in, in helping that happen after he had left uh, and said he'd never write for Dritz again. And so I'm really proud of that. And um, we had we kept trying to like organize him being at Gen Con, but to also tie it into books that he was doing and, and so on and so forth. And it, it turned out to be kind of a surprisingly difficult thing to, to make happen. And uh, eventually it did all the stars aligned and we had it all set up. Bob was going to be there in 2020 and then <laughs> COVID and, and uh, yeah, so we, we got to go back to the drawing board on that one, see what we can figure out. Classic, uh, classic luck for, classic uh, for types like for us. Like and us. of course, yeah, our viewers should know that I'm kind of joking because uh, Peter, of course, is completely correct. Uh, as, as we knew that he's been instrumental, he's been instrumental in, uh, in uh, Bob's um, um, participation, participation in the gaming. Uh, with his books. Am I am I am, am I, I getting the uh, the echo here, or is that on somebody else's end? I'm getting echo my voice. Are you guys hearing that? I'm I'm hearing it as well, Dan. I'm not sure what's causing it. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I'm gonna 
modify my end here a little bit. Um, sorry about that, everybody. Um, okay, so so I do want to transition to um, the you know, and we pitch our show, of course, as we like to talk about old school subjects and how that connects to things that are happening today. So obviously, Gen Con. The online registration is happening in a day, good enough. But I would really kick myself if I didn't take the opportunity to ask Peter a couple of things about this, this the, the moment where basically you save Dungeons and Dragons. So there's a point in the late 90s, and obviously, Peter, you founded Wizards of the Coast, and you were helmsman for Magic Gathering initially, and the, the Pokemon card game. Um, and then, um, to my understanding, your original uh, college degrees in computer science. Am I right about that? Yep, that's right. And and some of our some of our viewers will know that Paul and I met. We we met each other when we were computer programmers working in video games in the late nineties. So sure. 95, 96, 97, something like that. And at the time, Paul and I were working at a small company in Boston making video games that specialized in online collectible card games with a digital property technology component. And we, our company pitched uh, to Wizards of the Coast to, to maybe make Magic the Gathering online. And we came in second to a company called Leaping Lizard. And so my question, Peter, that I've been waiting for 22 years to ask is, uh, why didn't you pick Paul and me to make Magic the Gathering online? I mean, we're nice guys. <laughs> What's up with that? Uh, I, I, I stepped right out of this one too. Uh, you know, I, I had a guy running that department, and he the, the, he made the choice. I, I didn't make that choice. Come on, Peter, don't dodge the question. Come on, give me a straight question here. Give me a straight answer. Come on. No, I have no Peter. idea. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh well, I don't know if you have any comments about that. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, you, came in second. Could, we're real close. Um, we're real close. We're second, is what we're told. Yeah. Nope, number okay. two. I remember back then that we were very concerned that no one was ever going to pay real money for purely digital goods. That seems like crazy talk back then. Uh, obviously, things have changed. Yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, I still think it's crazy talk, but it's true. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, we were talking to you know talking about stuff online. We we're talking to Sean Reynolds in the last year, and he was very much in you know, a point man, obviously, for Mister Online at, at TSR in the '90s. And he was reminding us about the the enormous switch right right before you came in. TSR was immensely hostile to people sharing their D and D creations on the internet. And then uh, you came in, uh, acquired TSR, and in my view, had the single biggest uh, radical cultural change of all time. Time pivoted in the other direction about that. Um, and as as Joe the lawyer reminded us about, um, around 2000, Wizards with third edition D and D came out with the open gaming license. I totally agree. Spawned the whole indie RPG development. Spawned what we call the old school Renaissance at this time. Um, how much was that your idea coming in? How, how much have you had an idea like that to oh. open it up? 
Well, um, I, I certainly wanted to, uh, you know, give people and players permission to post stuff, you know, that more of that, you know, just like the type of stuff that was already happening in terms of like uh, people posting their house rules and people posting stuff about their campaigns and D&D stuff, the type, you know, the type of stuff that uh, TSR wasn't in favor of before. But, you know, that's there's a big step from that to what really, you know, the whole D20 uh, open gaming license and i think that uh you know that was not my idea that was a ryan dancy idea or his team he, he was here he might um uh have better insight into exactly who came up with the idea but he championed that idea within watsy i immediately loved the idea uh it was like it wasn't a hard sell and so yeah there there was no not much opposition to that idea within wizards when when uh when he started uh pushing that and some of it was economical in the sense that Ryan and I think Lisa Stevens was involved in the analysis of this and Keith Strom and um, uh, so on. The, the sort of figuring out financially that a lot of these campaign settings were segregating the TSR, the Dungeons and Dragons market into smaller and smaller uh, groups and that the campaign settings were effectively competing against each other it wasn't that attractive of a market, except for like maybe, a, you know, like once in a while, a big single campaign setting sort of book. And so by doing, you know, by making it a, a, an open license to some extent, effectively, Wizards was able to you know, sort of farm out the less profitable part of the business, less profitable to Wizards. Uh, and because there's also this thing about companies at different size are profitable, different types of activities. And so Wizards uh, was of the size that small game products, when you tack on sort of the corporate overhead of, uh, of doing a small game that might only do a few thousand pieces or book that might only do a couple thousand units, these businesses were not profitable businesses for, for Wizards, but they could be profitable for a small RPG company that didn't have the same level of uh, overhead and, and so on and so forth. So I think there was, um, uh, I think it made a lot of sense for Wizards to be able to support D&D, pull back and just focus on four rules and a couple of campaign settings perhaps and, and let that, all that go out to, uh, and then effectively what it did is, is it got the whole industry vested in D D to some extent and so when third edition came out uh and, and third edition itself was was a, it was a great edition you know we broke all sales records for the time with third edition and then uh to get companies you know like white wolf and uh you know atlas games and other companies in the industry to suddenly start writing products for our game system uh, was a huge stroke of lightning for, for Dungeons and Dragons. And um, uh, so it was great. Yeah, I remember a lot of excitement at the time. Again, just the, the radical, just falling off the cliff difference of things that, you know, my, I, I you know, participated with D&D as a player for, for decades and was like, you know, this will, Excel never happened. Why? They'll never allow that. And then all of a sudden, right. there was a lot of excitement about different ways that one could contribute or participate or maybe make a business out of it. Um, have there been have there been any like like the, the legacy of that now going on 20 years you know, later? Have there been any big surprises about how that's evolved or the impact from that from from what you were thinking at the time? 
Well, well, I think just a couple, three years later, there was a crash of D20 products. And so mm -hmm. that um, there was an economic uh, obstacle there uh, that hurt some publishers and hurt some retailers uh, when there was ended up being sort of a glut of D20 products. So, you know, that that wasn't entirely positive. And uh, but, you know, the industry got through that and things normalized to some extent, you know, and I think, um, uh, first of all, I think it's a great I'm, I'm really happy that this idea has survived. I mean, it's it's evolved and changed and stuff, but, but there's still sort of this sense that um, uh, people can do a lot with uh, the core rules of D&D &D, uh, independent without any sort of license or anything. I think one of the uh, evolutions that's been interesting is the DMs Guild on RPGNet, where yeah. uh, there are proper specific campaign settings now that are open source to some extent. I'm probably not using the right, exactly the right terms, but uh, where, you know, I know that Eberron, uh, Keith Baker's campaign that he created, when this happened, when this became released to the DMs Guild so that DMs Guild authors could write adventure modules or setting uh, type information uh, set in the world of Eberron, it ended up being, uh, I mean, that, that was a new thing. You couldn't, like back when we right. first did 20, you couldn't write mm -hmm. anything setting. Specifically. You couldn't do a Greyhawk or a Birthright or anything like that. So this was a step forward, I think. And I think it also, it allowed the people who were fans of some of those old settings, you know, Birthright or whatever, uh, to, you know, get together and, like, make a module, share it, post it. You know, I mean, that's just... That's awesome. I was so glad that I'm still not going to get over that. Frankly, I mean, you, we mentioned the the digital property that all three of us are not going to get over, and the the being able to use uh, you know D and D intellectual property like the campaign settings. I will. Uh, I'm, I'm I don't think I'm ever going to get over that. You know, we had we had one uh, comment here that I've I've got to get uh, on screen here. Um, and that's uh, from Joe the Lawyer again. Thank you so much for that super chat, Joe. Uh, and he said, uh, I battled the TSR online rep. So this is before Peter came into the picture. Um, I battled the TSR online rep uh, for a long time over their tyrannical uh, online policies. I even suggested a license. So I kind of think the OGL is really thanks to me. Uh, it was really my idea. So Joe, if that's the case, <laughs> if that was the case, thank you for... Thank um, you. you know, giving feedback, right? Because we were all frustrated at the time, frankly, and not all of us even had the time to do that. So thanks for reminding us about that, Joe. That's a great observation. <laughs> and thanks for the super chat, of course. <laughs> uh, let's see here. I have I have a lot of so I'm I'm running the show today, and <laughs> Sorry, Dad. I have a lot of windows that I'm. <laughs> The, right, the OGL, I point out, one of the interesting outputs of the OGL for me, of course, was the enabling of the retro clones and sort of the rebirth of uh, old school gaming. Um, I'm curious to hear if you have any insights into that uh, or any thoughts on, on how it came to pass. I missed a little bit of that. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, am I cutting out? Um, I, I, I was uh, just pointing out that uh, the, the, the OGL, I think, was instrumental in kind of the, the rebirth of the old school, um, that, that a, lot of, uh, a lot of old products, uh, when, when the older editions were out of print, uh, were, were enabled to come back to market due to the OGL. Yeah, I do remember, I don't know when this really fully 
became integrated with how D&D was managed. But I certainly remember in the late 90s, there was kind of this transition at some point from like, okay, we come out with a new edition. Now we've got to move everything to that edition and move all our player base to that edition and so forth. And, you know, I think that's what we tried to do with third. And um, uh, Ward sort of, uh, hey, somebody wants to play AD&D or second edition D&D we should support them a little bit. We should try and figure out ways that we can support. You know, we're just happy you're playing D&D, right? I mean, you know, play, play whatever edition you like. And uh, so I think that there was a, a mind shift uh, around that uh, that happened uh, just kind of around the turn of the century. Yeah. So another, th- another thing that, like, added so much... Uh, uh, over the years to to our hobby, and I really got to thank you, Peter. For I mean, at some point you had to say it was okay, right? I mean, the prior the prior management of TSR would have never let that let the OGL see the light of day. So, uh, thank you for see, for seeing the wisdom of that, and it's it makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense now, certainly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really like glad a- I was you know sober yeah. that day, and thought, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> But you're, yeah. you're involved in many, so many so many things. It's it's uh, I I we could I could talk to you all day. But um, the other thing I really got to talk to you about is, um, you know, obviously, like many of us, you got into this whole business and hobby from a love of the game, and you started off. You've designed your own uh, war game and self published that years back, and you've designed your own uh, role playing game that actually connected to other role playing games and sort of sort of a, a, a preview of the OGL, as a matter of fact. And at the moment, and the other thing is, and my understanding is you have had a, a D&D campaign called The World of Chaldea since the late 70s that you've been running. And it was just the start of this year that you started streaming illustrated, uh, professional-voiced episodes from that. And you also do live plays on Twitter now. Um, and I guess those those are all available on both YouTube and worldofchaldea.com uh let me pull up some uh some some uh, art from world of chaldea and you tell us what that's about here sure that's right okay i can barely see it i think i see which one that is um uh oh i know if i look down on this screen i can see oh yes uh that looks like and this uh, is one of our dry, right so I, I picked up a bunch of uh you know preview art from your website so so yeah, maybe tell yeah, our yeah. viewers what world of chaldea is about if, if they'd be interested right. in that at all yes absolutely so uh chaldea and, and that is a uh, that art shows a drazzledar which is one of our unique creations uh most of uh chaldea was my dungeons and Dragons. Dragons campaign that I started in 1979 and have been DMing ever since with various editions of D&D and also Burning Whale. And that, uh, a few years ago, I got this kind of crazy idea, like, I'm going to go to film school. And uh, as I went to film school and then started to figure out, how do I make Chaldea come to life uh, as a uh, an entertainment sort of, a, as a film project? Well, fantasy is really expensive so uh, in terms of filming. So we're doing it mostly with motion graphics with art. And um, so... We started working on this a few years ago, and we released it in uh, December 20, 2020, was the uh, first episode went live on YouTube. And it is, uh, it, it is in some ways kind of an old school sort of world in the sense that it's 
dragons and giants and undead and orcs and humans and elves and dwarves and you know sort of like um we don't use anything that tsr invented or, you know all the fantasy elements are predate tsr sort of generic sort of fantasy uh things out of literature and fantasy and mythology and so on and a lot of uh we use real world pantheons for gods uh so no contemporary religions like you're not going to meet jesus or buddha you know but you know you can meet zeus and you know uh and a very you know set and uh so on so i i was i grew up in that era of D where we did a lot of uh the, the deities and demigods book was like a high level monster manual really right that was like the things a high level people will go do so that's kind of uh uh, the, the, the setting of Dungeons and Dragons. And so what we have is we created a story set in this world. It's a big epic story. Uh, Steve Connor, who's my partner in this, we often joke that we hope we finish it before we die. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, I think there's, you know, there's a chance we will. And then, uh, we, and, and then we also do... And so, and so that is the principal storyline on our YouTube channel, World of Chaldea. Uh, we also have been streaming games on Twitch uh, on Gilding Light, which is uh, one of the uh, Satine Phoenix channel, where we've been streaming RPG sessions uh, using this idea of Actoroki that I mentioned earlier, where we uh, film an RPG setting uh, scenario, and then we write a screenplay adaptation and, and record actors performing it. And then we edit that into a movie, and we have a viewing party where we watch how it turned out. And so, uh, you know, there's an old, old saw about RPGs being 20 minutes of excitement crammed into four hours. Uh, we, we go searching for those 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we, okay. I, I mean, I will yeah. say for, maybe for new viewers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Paul and I uh, last year had a and uh, d tournament uh, live show called The Big Bad. Uh, we had a six episode uh, season where we got a bunch of our favorite players. And uh, the, the work was the editing. Right. The work was the editing. We had a wonderful, wonderful editor named Russ. And that was the primary work was to find, you know, find those moments and try to try to make it as intense as possible. So totally feel that. Yep. Yeah. One thing that we were yeah. we were talking about a little we, we just touched on before the show started was when I when I looked at the, the episodes to your season one World of Chaldea, you have a very serious content warning that you deliver yourself at the start of the episodes. And they're clearly not for children. And you're very upfront that some adults will be bothered by this. And I think in the first episode, you say medieval life was always violent and cruel. And you're going to see that in the content here at World of Chaldea. On, on our channel, we've had a lot of discussions in the last year about how, you know, many people come to fantasy games nowadays and maybe they don't expect it to actually reflect actual medieval life. Uh, or, or maybe maybe some people actually feel that shouldn't maybe. So personally, I feel like that actually took some courage um, to to be uh, upfront about that, Peter. Uh, and I'm wondering if you've had if you've had problems with that, or if this is a niche for adult um, you know entertainment exploration that is underserved. Or how do you how have you managed to navigate that? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you asking uh, about that because we are trying to walk this really weird sort of line. Uh, we don't want to uh, produce anything that is offensive in terms of like, 
you know, the as our culture has evolved to be more inclusive and um, have more diversity. I, I love that aspect of our culture. And in fact, we have a lot of that in Chaldea. You know, our lead character is a medieval uh, Arab uh, sort of character inspired, of course, our fantasy version of that, Ardan. Uh, we have, um, you know, a broad uh, ethnic diversity among all the different human uh kingdoms around Chaldea. I've always loved that aspect to it. And at the same time, uh, so we try to we try to do that. And at the same time, it's a mature content sort of program. Uh, I think that um, I don't know, I, you know, we, some of us like dark content on certain things. Some of us like horror. Some of us like really gritty fantasy. And I love history. And I also like my fiction a bit on the darker grimmer sort of side and so history yeah it was violent cruel i mean you know it's like what's the best time period in the history of the world to live right now because it's it's been getting better for centuries and centuries and as you go further and further back uh the world becomes a less comfortable place to live in and so i but i like history and i think that um uh as we all work together to try and build a better world that is more uh, diverse and more and more social justice and the things that, um, that, that I, I shouldn't say we all, I don't know you guys very well, but it's certainly something I, I believe in. I think it's also uh, important to not forget how far we've come as humans. And um, uh, yeah, medieval life was not good. <laughs> and so, uh, so we do have uh, so the darkness, uh, you know, everything from patriarchal attitudes to slavery to warfare and torture, all these things, you know, that is the setting. And the heroes, I, I, I kind of like the Disney ending. The, the heroes are set up to rise above that. You know, as Kurt Vonnegut once said, drag your hero through the mud so we know what they're made of. And... So the I idea of having a um, a very intense sort of setting that's violent and cruel and harsh makes acts of heroism shine more brightly. And uh, if built in built in obstacles and built in conflicts for all the characters uh, to to get past. And um, yeah, that's so that's what I like. It's 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 difficult. We don't always get it right. We are always coming up against you know sort of you know thought about social justice and liberal attitudes and being progressive all these thoughts are evolving my own understanding of these things are evolving uh there are certainly times when i kind of got in a corner like oh wow how do i address this sort of how do i apply this idea to my stories uh you know like when um i, I think a good example that's pretty contemporary a couple years ago uh there was this uh article about orcs that was written uh, about how um, some of the unfortunate decisions about how they were designed. And I became aware of this idea of, you know, that orcs having, you know, it's like Bob Salvatore said re recently about mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the drow, having races that look a lot like humans, let's say species is, I'm trying to train myself to change that word uh, to species, having a species that is inherently evil um, is maybe an unfortunate uh, decision. It is an unfortunate sort of idea. So we had to look at our orcs and go, 
Mm, yeah, I always had just thought of them as innately evil, but um, it actually the solution for us was really easy to sort of uh, retroactively figure out a new uh, vision of orcs. These orcs were are all ruled over by a dragon, and so we came up with the idea that oh, these this dragon who's evil. It's okay to have a dragon that's evil. Uh, the dragon is evil. He has been manipulating the orcs to be evil through the way this really brutal sort of breeding program and warfare from the from the early natures uh, earliest stages of their life, and so doing things like this to try and uh, bridge you know, to walk this line between having us as individuals having progressive values, but at the same time wanting to write stories that are pretty dark, and yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, personally, I think that's well put. The, um, I'm, I'm kind of guessing, I mean, there's not just one uh, article that's ever been written about analyzing orcs in RPGs, obviously. Now, certainly one uh, uh, that's, that's of note was written by uh, uh, Mr. Uh, James Mendez Hodes, and we actually had him on last season uh, to, to yeah. share his insights with us, actually, in this exact topic. And so we're thankful to, to him for appearing, and it's really fascinating that a, 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 a game, a campaign that's been run since the '70s, that you you know someone such as yourself has sat down and thought really deeply based on those analyses, and that's a really fascinating connection that it continues to evolve today. Yeah, it, his uh, it, that's the article I was referring to. I apologize that I, yeah. I have got his name. I, I remember Mendez, but I think that's his middle yeah. name. I didn't name. Yeah, right, so. right, yeah. <laughs> Right, Paul. I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that on that on that yeah. issue. I know that you've been thinking about similar stuff lately. I'm I'm actually curious, um, just in general, like how uh, the sort of the creative flow for this this show, right? Where you're 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 you obviously have content created uh, uh, ahead of time that, but then is presented to players, and players influence that. So there's some creative input there from the the players of the game, and then of course it has to go through the whole process of of, um, you know, then rewriting it into a script that's then recorded. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, what your process is like for, for, I assume you have to have these talks, right, with the cast and crew, that, or, or just the players of the game to say, you know, this is, this is what we're after, right? Well, I try to give the players as much agency as possible. I mean, I, to me, it's just, like, I, I do know that a lot of streamers, you know, that, that have these shows very scripted, and the players kind of know, follow the script, and I... Uh, yeah. I just I just can't deal that way, you know. So I I create. Uh, we we don't know where the players are going to go when we're doing Akroki. So I do have my uh, my buddy Steve Connard, who's my co Aldea, pretty much everything. So he's lined up, you know. So our process is I run a game. We have some ideas, of course, going into the game. It's not like I'm just ad libbing the game, but you know, it's like okay, maybe it. I kind of ended up DMing by sort of a pick a path sort of model, like in your head, you know, like okay. They're here. Here's a couple of different options. They might decide to do something completely different. And then at different points, they might go left or right. And so you can kind of anticipate what some of the likely scenarios will be. And uh, you design for that, of course, as, as a DM. And then when we play, then Steve starts writing the screenplay immediately. And okay. he's got you know, basically five days to write that screenplay. I know as soon as the session's over, the casting requirements pretty obviously like i can look back and say well first of all the player characters of course we cast those early so the the the, the five player characters that were in the season one uh we cast those before so so that's done as far, 
far as a casting perspective goes. But if they meet a new NPC, a new monster, if, it, if the monster has lines, uh, and maybe an NPC comes back from before. And so there's a little bit of, um, of, like, of hustle to get those actors lined up. And in a couple of cases, we've had an NPC coming back where the actor's not available. And so, you know, we have to work around that somewhere. Like, I'll record maybe that actor separately. So maybe the actor session of Actor Oki won't be 100% of the performances. So we give ourselves permission to, uh, to, to do some of that. And so he's got five days to write the script. Uh, so the next show, let's say we've been doing on Thursday night. Uh, so by, by Tuesday night, he gets me the script. And then I do uh, a script breakdown. I give a chance to do a pass on it. And then I send it all to the actors on Wednesday. So the actors only have a day in the script for a little over 24 hours, like wow. 30 hours. And wow. also, <laughs> what's really made it challenging in terms of process is that performing on Zoom, you know, like here I'm looking at the lens to communicate with you, but my screen's down there. You know, if I had a script, I'd be looking like this if I was reading the script live, right? And then looking back to the screen. So it's, uh, so I've had to tell the actors after I cast them, oh, by the way, you guys need to be off book. You need, you need to have your, your lines memorized as close as possible. Wow. Uh, so that's, wow. uh, that's been a bit of pressure on the actor, but the actors, you know, they, they'll, they'll work on it and then, and we get through and, um, and then we have a week to edit it. And the, I, I think mainly we just don't set the quality bar too high. <laughs> it's just like the, the, these fast turnarounds. If we've sort of given our permission, this, ourselves permission to say, hey, quality is, doesn't have to be everything here. What we're doing is really fast turnarounds. And, uh, so, and we also have an illustrator that's amazingly fast. So we have uh, Tanelle Lovett illustrates live during our RPG session. So as things, and we give her a little information in advance so she knows what scenes are likely to come up. And so huh. she can kind of pre-plan what an illustration might look like for that scene. We give her some of these ideas. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And in the, uh, in the RPG session, she'll work on, uh, uh, on illustrations. And then she continues working on the illustration in, in the, for, over the following week. So by the time we get to the, um, the viewing party, which is when the a week after the performances are recorded and the editing is, is done, uh, the art is coming in literally the day before that viewing party and I'm placing it into uh, Premiere or After Effects right, uh, right before uh, the part, you know, we do the export. So that, that's the process. It's, it's manic. But yeah, after years of DMing, uh, or uh, after years of recording films for Chaldea, I, I have films I recorded like four years ago that still have not been okay. uh, being in public because okay. the process is so slow for our principal storyline. I just got to the point where like, okay, I'm going to keep that process going because that is our big okay. epic story. Okay. Okay. But I need, I want to, this is a lot more fun for me because I'm able to work with actors, record something, and then get it to screen the next week. That is, I, you know, the, the, the main storyline is super well polished. Uh, even, lo even looking at your actor Oki stuff, I wouldn't have guessed that the turnaround time was like that. And isn't that really the joy of the hobby of getting to, to intermix with kind of a small team? It's not like a giant movie with 200 people working on it. To get to intermix with a small team and have your ideas bounce back off somebody and come back so much better. That's kind of really why we're here, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the two, 
the two formats uh, each scratch a different, you know, the, uh, but yeah, the Akaroki is just super fast. We get stuff, it's interactive. We're doing everything live uh, and it's, it's really a lot of fun. The principal storyline, you know, does sort of scratch the itch of like once in a while, it's good to get maybe not 200 people, but maybe 60 people on a film shoot on location with nice cameras and, and everything really polished and put that together. And that, that's, that's, that's fun too. Right, right. So obviously, uh, Paul and I could talk with you. Yeah, there's, there's I'm doing some, some there's, go ahead paul sorry i think i think we're picking up some background conversations in someone's house right i uh, i'm uh also I'm in an empty here. warehouse it's not me right uh, i'm also uh, in an empty i'm also in an empty anyway so anyway so regardless of the fact so we could talk i kind of want to talk to peter all day but we're up against our time as a matter of fact peter is there anything else that you wanted to share with our viewers today about either Gen Con or, you know, D&D in the OGL or World of Chaldea that we didn't get to yet? Uh, no, I, I, I mean, uh, Gen Con is yeah, happening soon. Gen Con.com, come to the website, check it out. You can be there in person or uh, attend on, uh, virtually our Chaldea. We are at, uh, on YouTube, mainly a World of Chaldea channel or uh, worldofchaldea.com is our website. And I did want to double down on what you mentioned about con serious content warnings because we do have mature content. Uh, it's been edited. Our YouTube videos have been edited to comply with YouTube's content standards. But I think mm -hmm. that it's really important. Obviously, it is really important to have uh, content warning. We have content warnings in the front of our videos that have uh, mature content. Also on the, on the YouTube description, there's content warnings there. And on our website, there's a, a gate. Uh, uh, to go through to access anything on the website, and then we have content warnings there too. So, um, yeah, great. Right. And you know, I will say I had to carefully curate the art that we were showing here. As a matter of fact, some of the art is challenging, and I was I was impressed, and I thought it took some courage for that. So do do keep that in mind. It's definitely an adult uh, uh, topic. We have links to everything that Peter mentioned in the archive to our show on YouTube. So please click click right through there. Um, and uh, we hope that you'll uh, visit the, that great work that Peter's been doing. Um, so I think that about wraps it up for our, our interview with, with Peter today that has just gone by like that. Uh, if you viewers have any thoughts you'd like to share with us um, later on, please leave it in the comment section on the YouTube uh, later on. And if you're new to the show, remember that you can like and follow and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and also GitHub, if you're a computer science person, we are also there. And we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. So look for us there. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can get those at our website at wanderingdms.com. Uh, you can also find us on various carriers, such as Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify. If you are listening to us on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of that site find our show. And we really appreciate it. We really do. Uh, of course, every week, a uh, big thanks to our patrons who support the show and let us do the back scenes work to arrange wonderful guests like Peter Atkinson today uh, and other folks. And if you'd like to join our patrons, please go to patreon.com slash wandering DMs, a couple different tier levels. We do have discounts on merch, access to a private Discord server, monthly behind the scenes videos and polls and surveys, and after party chat that we have on our Discord server live 
uh, that'll happen a couple minutes after this show today, as a matter of fact. So please join us there. Uh, upcoming shows on the Wandering Dams channel this week. Paul will be back with uh, 10 Dead Rats, our D&D Warhammer, uh, always hilarious, frankly, game. Uh, Monday night at 8 p.m. Uh, Isabel and I will be back with our Book of War D&D-inspired miniature war game Saturday night at 8 p.m., so please look for, for all of those things. Uh, Peter, we cannot thank you enough for getting some of your incredibly valuable time here today to share with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. You guys are great. Uh, I hope to catch up with you at maybe one of those New England conventions sometime. Yeah. We will yeah, very much yeah, look forward to it. As soon as Paul fights off Nyarlathotep, uh today and we <laughs> and gets a little bit more secure are, right paul are there, are there are there tentacles coming up in the water behind me right now that someone was a little worried that jason might appear as a matter of fact maybe a couple days after friday the 13th so good job paul yeah <laughs> thanks again peter now don't forget we are live every sunday at 1 p.m eastern time so we hope that you will join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion we'll see you then <laughs>